0: There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the Tragedy of Cinema's Twilight Zone.
1: This is Africa, 1943. War spits out its violence overhead, and the sandy graveyard swallows it up. Her name is King 9, B-25 medium bomber, 12th Air Force. On a hot still morning, she took off from Tunisia to bomb the southern tip of Italy. An errant piece of flak tore a hole in a wing tank. And like a wounded bird, this is where she landed. Not to return on this day or any other day.
2: All right guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. Yes, we're here back for the fresh start of season 2 of the Twilight Zone. I'm your host Jimbo and once again joined by the interdimensional being known as
0: ADZ here from the 5th dimension 80's. and uh, Two Booths 1 podcast today. Yeah, we're on <laughs> we're on remote we're on remote. We're out in the desert here, so we're uh Right.
2: Yeah. We're uh, two man band today, but it's just in two separate facilities. So yeah. Eric's good to have you back, ready to get going on season two again. Really enjoyed season one. Um we, we we learn from our mistakes as we go along and hopefully people still stick by us till the end. So Yeah. Here we go. Season two. Episode one, King Nine Will Not Return.
0: All right. Well, you want me to take it away? King Nine will not take return. It. Okay. King Nine will not return. This is the Twilight Zone season two, episode number one. Uh, It was directed by Buzz Kulik, and it, of course, uh, was written by Rod Serling. And featured music is original score by Fred Steiner. And our original air date for this particular episode was September the 30th, 1960, and the total production costs come in at a steep, whopping $61,812.53, which I think up until this point might be the most expensive episode that uh, went into produ- production so far. And just for a little fun fact, when we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at $571,279.34 in today's dollars and by the way inflation is growing by the minute um so it, it might even go even a little bit higher by the end of this year um so that is an 824 percent uh gain when you uh, adjust it for inflation 824 percent increase um so jimbo the cast is pretty short in this particular episode why don't you go ahead and take that
2: sure we have um Eric's grandpa, great grandpa, <laughs> Bob Cummings. No relation. <laughs> no, by the no, way. no relation. <laughs> Not that he does know of. I told him to bust out ancestry.com uh, and see if he could find out. But plays right. well, Captain James Embry. Uh, he was famous for the movie Dial M for Murder, where he played Mark Holiday back in 1954. Gene Lyons as the psychiatrist. Um, he's uh, been seen in Star Trek, the original series in 1966, where he played Ambassador Fox. You had Paul Lambert as the doctor. A really cool fact about him is he was actually an Army Air Corps lieutenant in World War II. Okay. Um, But he's also best known for Planet of the Apes, um, where he was the uh, ministrog in 1968. And he was also in Spartacus in 1960, where he played Canicus. Uh, Richard Lupino played Blake. And Jenna McFarlane. Man as the nurse now the th- interesting fact about jenna mcmahon is she did a lot of writing for a lot of tv shows and th- some of these are mama's family oh. uh, soap carol burnett show oh, wow. the facts of life th- oh, she was the creator of facts of life wow uh and she was also on an episode or uh, a derided episode of uh different strokes so oh, yeah. very popular writer um uh, for her time i mean that is some really great shows that she came up with especially mama's family and even the facts of life you know what i mean i thought it was great
0: yeah so that's there you pretty, have it
2: that is your cast
0: yeah that's a pretty big collection of uh sick 70s and 80s sitcoms are pretty notable at least for her only having basically like two lines in this episode that's that's pretty neat <laughs> um let's move on to the uh the uh, well just as tech specs here i guess uh you know what? I'm not even really going to go over there because they're pretty much the same. 25 minute runtime, mono, all the things that we've uh, normally touched on. The aspect ratio is 1.33 to one, uh, which is interesting. This is a well, this may maybe a rabbit trail, but for the new Seinfeld, I guess a lot of people are complaining because it just went to Netflix that they changed the aspect ratio. And I've been, I was going to ask you this earlier, Jimbo, because we watched it on Vudu, the, the Twilight Zone. I wonder what aspect. We should do a. We should do a uh, investigation on that and see what aspect ratio Voodoo uses for these episodes. Because uh, going back to the Seinfeld thing, apparently when they changed the aspect ratio from you know late eighties and early nineties television, whatever the aspect ratio was then, I don't remember what it is. Some of the scenes and some of the comedy, people were complaining the the object comedy was getting cut off when they transferred it over. I thought that was thought that was interesting. Well.
2: Don't also forget that you can change the aspect ratio on your TV screen by itself. Right, anyway, right, right. So you can go from a sixteen nine to a whatever. You know what I mean on your TV zone. But also, I think it's we need to point out with Twilight Zone in season two, especially uh, not in this episode, but in future episode. This is where they tried to cut some of their budget by yep. using handheld video camera footage. And the sad thing about that is some of those that were shot were fantastic stories and it just didn't deliver the same way i don't think and we'll we'll talk about that as we get to them but i thought we should go ahead and point that out that that may be why uh some of these budgets were high is because they're trying to cut money because cbs or whatever was like can't do it
0: yeah we'll get to the some of the costs uh later in my notes i have some in the trivia notes i have some of the costs of the the actual aircraft used here uh For this episode is pretty expensive. But anyway, let's move on with the plot. The, um, the plot reads as such. The, the plot of the downed B-25. I'm sorry, the pilot of the down, I can read, uh, downed (laughs) B-25, Captain James Embry awakens in the desert with no memory of how he got there. More worrisome, his crew is nowhere to be found. He begins to wonder if he's hallucinating, especially after he sees one of his men sitting in the cockpit. When he awakens in the hospital, he thinks it might have all been a dream, but wonders, did any of this really happen? So, there's a nice little plot twist there at the end, and we come to find out some of the answers. Well, we don't really get that question really answered completely. Um, but, is Jimbo, did you want to go ahead and... Um, we start out the episode, of course, as, sure. as tra- tradition, we start out with Rod's uh, narration. We thought we would read it this time, uh, so do you want to go ahead and uh, drop that in right now?
2: I will, but not only that, but this is also the uh, first feature on-camera narration of oh. beginning of an episode for Rod Sterling, right. too. So, right,
1: right. Uh, season That's 2 a-
2: already starting off with some new stuff, so here we go. The intro. This is Africa, 1943 war spits out its violence overhead or overhead and the sandy graveyard swallows it up her name is king 9 B25 medium bomber 12th air force on a hot still monday she took off from tunisia to bomb the southern tip of italy an errant piece of flak tore a hole in a wing tank and like a wounded bird this is where she landed not to return on this day or any other day
0: right as we drop in the episode uh after rod's uh commentary there uh, which all this was provided to us by the way um uh both of us have a book called unlocking the door to a television classic it's entitled the twilight zone uh unlocking the door to a television classic so um, that's where we get all of our information uh as far as uh, notes and are specific to that particular resource that we we both use but as we drop in on the episode we see uh parts of an airplane just strewn all about on uh well we're in the desert which i guess it's important let me just drop this in right here because it, it, it fits so well uh, this particular episode, Serling was inspired to write the teleplay because of recent news events reporting the discovery of a B-24 Liberator bomber known as Lady B. Good. Following a bombing raid in uh, April of 1943, the Lady B. Good of the fifteen uh, 514th Bomb Squadron failed to return to base. After attempts to locate the plane, the nine crew members were classified as missing in action and they were presumed dead and they were believed to have perished after the uh, crashing into the Mediterranean Sea. Flash forward to February 27, 1959, when a British oil surveyor named Paul Johnson located the wreckage of the Lady Be Good in the Sahara Desert following a first sighting from the air on May 16 and June 15, 1958. The plane was broken into two pieces, it was immaculately preserved with functioning guns, working radio, and supplies of food and water. No human remains were found near the aircraft, uh, nor parachutes found. Uh, this episode of The Twilight Zone was not only a film inspired by the Lady Be Good incident, a 1970 made-for-TV movie entitled Soul Survivor, uh, concerned the ghost of the B-25 bomber crew that crashed in the Libyan desert, and uh, a 1964 novel, *Flight of Phoenix*, uh, excuse me, *Flight of the Phoenix*, featured a similar premise, but the plot does not involve ghosts, strange visions, or a lone survivor. Instead, the story concerns a group of survivors who would crash land into the desert and must resort to an arrogant aeronautical engineer to help repair the craft and seek uh, escape route. So I thought that was interesting that Rod's whole premise was based on a, a real life event of this crash b2 but wouldn't that be cool like to come back from world war Two and it's like what 1958 1957 and find that thing completely preserved with all of its working guns and and yeah
2: but, i'd be calling um the antique road show let's see how much <laughs> we can get for this bad boy yeah. right <laughs> it kind of it
0: kind of reminded me of uh lost like i know you're a big fan of lost and like kind of the premise of how the plane crashes on you know but i guess that was like on a desert island though but that would be really cool to see something like that completely preserved uh, and, and fully intact. I thought that was an interesting inspiration for Rod. So we come back to the, to the episode, and we are in the opening of the episode. This particular Captain James Embry, he's lying on the desert floor, if you will, in the sand, and all of the airplane parts are strewn all around, and he's really wrestling with him you know, there's, there's kind of this vacillating back and forth between an inner monologue and shouting things out loud, right? So he yeah. he, he really starts uh, with the inner monologue early in the episode, and he says, oh yeah, I remember. He's trying to remember all of the events of how he got to the where he's at. And he's like in the middle of, you know, this plane crash and he's trying to remember how he got there and he's going in his mind, he's trying to come up with some kind of idea of how he got to where he's at. And he doesn't know if anyone's alive and there are like a lot of questions that surround uh, what's going on right now and that's really I guess would be the the meat of the whole entire episode. The main thrust of the episode is him you know sort of going in and out of uh, his inner monologue versus saying things out loud and he's hallucinating. And it's really hot and there's no water. Um, Jimbo, do you want to jump in? Anything interesting or uh, something that jumps out to you early?
2: Yeah, this is, we've talked about this before, but when you're a solo actor like this, it's really hard to get into the episode. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Bob Cummings didn't do a good job here, man, but it, for me, it's really hard for when they have these solo. Um, actors on here you really yeah. have to and, and then not only that but they start talking to themselves. you know what i mean
0: yeah um yeah.
2: if i was in that situation i don't know if i'd necessarily be talking to myself you know i'd still be trying to figure out what's going on but it, but it is uh for the viewers um i guess courtesy being able to put words have him talk to kind of to walk you through what's going on through his mind and everything as he's trapped there
0: yeah i'm with you on that i i definitely prefer the episodes where there are dialogue between people and their the cast is a little bit larger because it helps you stay focused and you know kind of helps pull you in on the episode uh on these solo acted episodes it is kind of difficult to to hang with a you know 20 minutes but yeah for sure um bob cummings did a, a really good job and you know, Rod had a lot of high praise for him in all of the resource material that I, I've looked at. He really regarded Bob Cummings very highly and his acting ability. And, you know, uh, he has nothing but praise for him. And he does do a great job. You know what I was thinking? I was going to ask you this the, uh, the other day. What if they remade this episode when we talked about this earlier before we started the podcast? It, Bob Cummings is believable, but. But like, what if you remade this episode and you put Joaquin Phoenix in, you know, just with like the association with like, say, the Joker and having somebody going back and forth and hallucinating and basically borderline schizophrenic. And, you know, he's all of the elements are beating down on him and stuff. And
2: I definitely could see him pulling it off.
0: Yeah, I he think that'd be it off. that'd be really cool uh, because I mean, like, yeah, Bob Cummings did a great job, but it is it is, well, it is mean, hard to it, follow.
2: Well, I mean, if if they remade it and they wanted to even uh, bring it more modern day, you could say the Desert Storm War, and have somebody right. find a plane from Desert Storm or something. So
0: right. Um, so we're in the King Nine's fuselage as we move along, and they're static on some headphones here, and he calls for help and he's calling mayday mayday he's calling out the, the 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 radio has a little bit of static on it and he really just kind of stumbles around uh the airplane calling out for you know his um what would you be it like his other the people that are in his under his command he's calling out for all of his men and he's calling them out by name and uh Blake he calls <laughs> Uh, You know, probably a hundred times, he just yells his name out loud, you know, and it's kind of, he's kind of just trying to come to grips with what's going on and trying to get, uh, you know, some stability and trying to formulate a plan. And, um, so after he kind of calls for help on the the radio and doesn't get any response back, he's really starting to become downtrodden at this point. He's really confused as we said before, and he checks his pocket and he finds an empty pack of cigarettes and then this inner monologue begins again and he's he feels utterly responsible for what's happened uh to his crew and he tries to calm himself down and say easy now i'm in charge there's got to be a solution to this problem there's got to be a logical explanation and you know he kind of does that throughout the episode um then he goes from yeah, they out. Spend a lo- Sorry, Jimbo, go ahead. They
2: spend, a lot, they spend a lot of time with him just wandering around looking for yeah, his
0: crewmates. Yeah, that eats up a lot
2: and, of time. And it was starting to take me out of the episode yeah. because you're like, come on, you know, we, we understand he's he's stranded <laughs> here and he's looking for his crewmates. Right. And then I think we're coming upon the part where he goes outside of the thing and he finds a water canteen uh, of one yep, of his crewmates. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think it was Klein, if I remember right.
0: Right. Uh,
2: so He's, he finds it he on just, the
0: ground and it has Klein's name on it, right? And then it turns really like it's just ominous. a lot of wondering,
2: a lot of wondering around for me, you know yeah, what I mean?
0: Yeah, yep, yep. And then, but he does, There, there is a point where he looks back to the cockpit of the King Nine and he sees Blake sitting in the cockpit or Blake's ghost, if you will. And he yells out, you know, his name, yells out to Blake, and then Blake vanishes. Um, then again, it's just a lot of volleying back and forth between his inner monologue and speaking out loud. And then he comes to a point here in the episode where he stumbles on to uh, a grave of Klein, right? He starts speaking out loud and he stumbles onto this grave of Klein's. And then he says something like, you know, rest in peace, rest in peace and then we get a, this is actually an interesting piece in the episode because we start, he, we start hearing jets flying overhead. All right. And we get some, a little bit of insight into the twist. Jimbo, go ahead.
2: Right. Um, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but when he was running up to the window for Klein, you can see, uh, Captain James Embry, uh, like spray painted on the side, right under the window. Okay. I thought that was really cool. Little yeah. Thing. Um, and also I have a question. Sure. He is the captain, but he's also, he's also the
0: pilot, right? Yeah, I think so I think he is why is
2: why is why is Blake sitting in the pilot seat then
0: yeah I don't know I don't know enough about those you know type of aircraft and you know all of the uh, you know who did what like who was assigned to what positions I mean obviously yeah he's the captain but I don't know if he yeah I don't know if he would actually fly the plane or not that's a good question but He hears those jets flying, going back to the jets, he he struggles to understand why he knows that they are, in fact, jets. And he knows all about them, and he starts naming them off, right? B-52, you know, he starts naming off this litany of jets, and he doesn't understand because, obviously, in the setting in which he is at present, their jet aircraft weren't invented at that particular time in World War II. So, once he, you know, he stumbles onto the... I already talked about that. He stumbles onto the grave side of Klein, and then isn't there like a? Doesn't like the whole crew make like a ghostly appearance uh, at the grave? Yeah, that's
2: after 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 he sees the uh, the uh, airplanes in the sky, which was actually driven by the uh, or flown by the Blue Angels. Uh, oh, okay. They were actually flying the U.S. Navy F nine F eight Cougar fighter jets, and they were built by Grumman. But, yeah, this is where he's still, uh, he's like, come on, guys, it's not funny. He's starting to crack under pressure. And I think he walks a little bit away from the airplane. And this is where he sees all, I think, was six or seven of them uh, lined up there.
0: Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, he really starts to crack up here. And then he goes back to the airplane again. And he's sort of standing and he's like, we got, we're got, we going to get out of here, guys. He's standing like in front of the propeller and he's like, we're going to get out of here. We got to get out. It's not going to be easy, but we got to, you know, he's trying to scramble. And I mean, his, yeah, his state of um, lucidity is completely gone. He, he really starts to crack up and he starts to have a complete nervous breakdown and the scene changes. Uh, this is where we get right to the end where we're nearing the end. And we have the camera pan down in the scene of... Um, I thought this was pretty cool. Um, Klein is, like, clutching the sand and then it switches to him clutching the se- the sheets uh, in his bed. And then we, you know, a lot of the twist begins to be explained here because he's in the right. hospital now. Jimbo?
2: But I do think we missed the important part is he, he was looking okay. for the crystal and he hears, that, he hears that clinking. And he walks over that top of that sand dune and there's that cross in the sand... That has the helmet of one of the persons on it. Yeah, that was Sergeant William Klein. Yes, says died on injuries received in a crash, fifth of April, nineteen forty-three. It says rest in peace, buddy, and it's signed the crew. So, Mm -hmm. and I think this is where he sees the ghost right after, or the the rest of the crew right after this. Yeah. So, I just wanted to point that out real quick.
0: Um, so now we're we're in the hospital, and and the doctors are asking him a series of questions, and we come to we come to. Find out the twist is revealed that he was supposed to go on a particular mission. Uh, was he sick or I can't remember? For whatever reason, he didn't go on the particular mission, and uh, all of the guys in his crew died on that mission. Yeah, and he, I guess it's you know, his conscience has bothered him. Oh, that's right, he saw a headline in the it's newspaper. A newspaper article. Yeah, and it, it sort of triggered that memory that he's been kind of suppressing. Uh, for most of his life and you know he feels guilty horrible guilt and responsibility for all of his crew members um uh, you know dying on that particular mission and it sort of triggered all of those things and kind of yeah it's him been seven a, yeah go ahead it's been
2: 17 years the since uh, the the crew vanished and the right. or the fighter went down so they just found it 17 years later and it's made like the front headlines of the newspaper so it's big news now and he just he just couldn't take it He's had a mental breakdown, if you will.
0: Right. And then in the final twist of the episode is revealed when the nurse brings Embry's clothing to the doctor. And uh, she puts like his shoes up on a table and sand falls out of his shoe. And the question you're left with was, uh, was Embry really there? Did he travel back in time? Or was this all big, just sort of a, uh, a dream or a psychological nervous breakdown or whatever? So it's pretty cool little twist at the end. So, Jimbo, do you have trivia that you want to knock um, out?
2: I do. Um, I think something we need to talk about is just the entire amount and time it took to get the airplane actually there and what all they went through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they actually bought it from a, a military surplus store, which they said they purchased for, I think, $2,500, if I remember correct. Yep. Um, they had to disassemble it, then they had to transport it to the desert location, and then they had to reassemble it on site. So just the time and cost and, and all that going on with that, I think, would be crazy.
0: Mhm. And then I think you Does might you have, have mentioned any? this earlier, uh the planes shown flying are US Navy F F9F-8 Cougar fighter jets flown by the uh Blue Angels uh team. Uh and they were built Have you by, ever seen
2: the Blue Angels?
0: I have not. Um I've always thought about wondered about going to a, like an air show or whatever, but I've never actually uh been to one. So another, I got a couple more trivia facts. A nurse was on hand for this particular episode to care for anyone who might suffer from uh, heat exhaustion while on location. The episode came in at about uh, $14,000 over budget. $5,000 of the overage was because the King 9's location and transportation expenses. Jimbo, you touched on that a little bit. Um, I guess temperatures back to the the nurse, I think uh, the, the temperatures were reaching well over 100 degrees. Uh, on shooting location. Um, Captain Embry, played by Robert Cummings, is said to be 41 years old in this episode. Cummings himself was 50 at the time of the episode, so he looks um, pretty young in this episode. And then, Jimbo, you talked about this earlier on in the episode, uh, about this being Rod Sterling's first uh, appearance. Well, technically it was in the last episode of season one, but this was sort of being more of a standard tradition that uh sterling would do his narration and he would be on camera for it um sterling was nervous when standing in front of the camera uh, he was tensing up when filming for the uh when the episodes commenced while he looked tall on the screen his height was five foot five and with nothing on camera of specific height to uh purposely compare him with much of the television audience was unaware of this fact i really don't like to do the hosting this is rod speaking he says i do it by default if I have to, it, he, as he explained to one reporter from the United Press in 1963, so apparently Rod was uh, only five foot five, and he really didn't actually he tensed up and really didn't like doing the on screen narration, but you know he felt like it was something that he was compelled to do. Um, one other thing uh, for Rod Sterling to make a dialogue in the script as true to form. And preventing viewers who served in the U.S. military from laughing at what could be obvious mistakes, Sterling consulted the DeForest research at Desilu uh, Studios. The verbiage of an American reporting a missing aircraft in the operations room and dialogue from a pilot of a downed aircraft were given careful attention. uh, To do the research cost, it talks about how much, it was like $15. Uh, that he paid a consulting firm for Desi Lou Studios. I guess it might have been like comprised of former uh, Air Force offer, officers or whatever, so that he could he wanted to dial in the uh, the actual dialogue and what that would sound like, so that it wouldn't seem ridiculous to uh, veterans or whatever when they aired the actual episode.
2: Well, that brings me up to another point. Um, There's Mm -hmm. several things, um, you know, if they didn't want to get laughed at, then there's several things that they've obviously uh, didn't pay attention to or or say anything. One of them is, you know, when he's naming the crew, the captain's name of the crew, Mm -hmm. and they're assigned tasks that they do, Mm -hmm. he doesn't mention a bombardier. You know, it's a vital crew member on the medium bomber. Um also Embry names Connors as the tail gunner but when he goes around the aircraft there's no tail gunner position. Ah. Um there's only a plexiglass glass window on the tail. Mm-hmm. And you know um, also they said that um if military personnel were in the desert like this they wouldn't be wearing black dark clothing they would be wearing khaki uniforms mm-hmm. for the heat. Okay. Um so I'm kind of wondering, you know, even even like the 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 turrets on this gun, or the 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 gun turrets for this plane, are different than turrets actually used on these bombers. So, and then also like the tail number painted, they said is uh, for the B twenty five on on the show is forty two 5 three two three five nine, but it should have been written as twenty three twenty three fifty nine. So my question is, if they went through the expense of getting a official uh, spokesperson or whatever from Desilu Studios. Then some of the stuff that they didn't want to get laughed at as obviously big mishaps as they go.
0: Yeah, yeah. That those are those are pretty big. So maybe they should have paid more than fifteen dollars to get more insight right. and research. Uh, one of one thing about Bob Cummings, uh, uh, apparently, Sterling was glowing in his review of his. Uh, You know, his portrayal here. He says, on on September 21st, 1960, Sterling told Cummings, your performance in The King Nine is something quite unique, and I think you'll share my pleasure in it. I think further, we ought to have some kind of social get-together the night of the premiere, September 30th, so I wish to put a little mark uh, on the calendar. CBS uh, Publicity had been calling me with a uh, tremored voice telling me of uh, the fantastic cooperation you've been giving them and publicizing the premiere show for a man of your stature. This goes well above and beyond the call of duty, and it's much much appreciated. So he really thought highly, I guess, of uh, Bob Cummings, and he thought well of his performance. Um, just a few. Do you want to jump into a little biopic of Bob Cummings, or you know, do you have yeah, other go ahead. questions or? concerns that you want to drop in uh he was born on june 9th 1910 he died on december 2nd 1990 Uh, his father actually was a physician dr charles clarence cummings and he was a surgeon and he was part of the original staff of john's hopkins hospital and or saint sorry john's saint john's hospital pardon me saint john's hospital in joplin missouri uh i graduated from high school in 1928 Uh, He actually was with the U.S. Army Air Force as a pilot during World War II, and he was stationed for a while in Oxnard, California. Now, here's an interesting thing as it relates to aeronautics. He actually is the godson of Orville Wright, who was an old family friend who also taught him to fly, and he piloted his own plane for most of his life. Um, Let's see. Maybe another highlight here. Uh, Oh, this is an interesting uh, thing as it pertains to flying and aeronautics. According to an article in Flying Magazine, when the government began licensing flight instructors, he received flight instructor certificate number one, the first instructor to ever receive a license. So pretty pretty interesting stuff. Oh, uh, on on a lesser thing, he was among the first guests at Disneyland's grand opening in 1955. Um, so yeah, that's pretty, pretty interesting stuff that he, you know, the Orville Wright stuff. And then the fact that he was the first licensed pilot instructor, um, thought that was pretty interesting stuff about Mr. Robert Cummings. No relation. That's
2: really cool. <laughs> Eric, you, you, I was going to say you, you, have lifelong family friends with the, uh, Wright family. It sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I um, do have a question for you, Eric. Sure. Go ahead. Do you have the, uh, uh, rod sterling's comment at the end of the episode Oh yes yes i tie do it all together
0: yeah we should uh the the outro if you will listen to to rod's right. words here he says enigma buried in the sand a question mark with broken wings that lies in silent grace as a marker in a desert shrine odd how the real consorts with the shadows how the present fuses with the past how does it happen the question is on file in the silent desert and the answer, the answer is waiting for us in the twilight zone.
2: Dun, dun, dun.
0: So, so any questions or observations, anything that you want to, well, what do you think of the episode, Jimbo? I mean, what's your overall opinion? Likes, <laughs> dislikes, etc. Well,
2: I'll tell you this. Um, I think it's the best one of season two so far,
0: <laughs> but it's also <laughs> the worst
2: one of season two so far since it's the only episode we've covered. I am not a fan of this episode. I I, I just don't like it, um, and it's not no fault of Bob Cummings because he he nailed his his performance. It's just mm-hmm. it's mediocre at best right. uh, when it comes to the realm of the Twilight Zone, especially uh, with some of the the uh, treats that we were given to in season one. Uh, and if this is something that you were trying to bring back to CBS uh, and that you want to capture a new audience, I don't know if I would have started off with this one. Mm-hmm.
0: Fair point i think it's a a lesser version of where is everybody i think rod maybe tried to remake it and he was trying to revamp it maybe to make it some of the mistakes maybe that he thought i don't know i just i prefer where is everybody if i had to compare them. but there are many parallels you know there's a single guy you know single uh guy who's Confused, he's trying to figure out what's going on. I just thought the angle of where is everybody with the whole military angle and all that stuff was a much better reveal and twist than this particular episode. Um, You know, I kind of started to be smirch season two, kind of talk it down a little bit in front of Art Toast (laughs) again, and he corrected me. Oh, and he got a he he put you in his place. Yeah, he really got. He gave me a little bit of a one-two punch and he was like, what are you talking about? Season two isn't as good as season one. You know, he's like, there's a lot of good episodes, which he was right when I went back and considered him. However, this particular episode is not one of my favorites in season (laughs) two. Uh, I'm with you on that. Did you hear that? It,
2: our toast shots were fired so if you want to respond
0: <laughs> so as an opening episode yeah i i i think they could have done a little bit better like kind of like what you have stated but i thought it was okay it was eh, it was it was mediocre probably at best it, it dragged in spots and it's really hard to to carry when you have a, a solo actor trying to carry the whole episode uh, no matter who it is i don't care who you are it, it's very difficult um, to do but definitely agree so this one's in this one's in the books
2: right but the next episode it jumps way better
0: way better yeah. yeah so
2: well i think that's the episode's coming to a close unless you have anything else you would like to add
0: no i think i got to everything that uh concerns the king nine will not return uh we'll be dropping in uh, well I don't know when we're going to drop our, our next episode. Our scheduling, we're trying to get our footing with our scheduling, but uh right. Keep posted um, and uh, we'll be sure to drop one in here shortly.
2: Yeah, we'll drop drop a couple in here in, in a couple days, I'm sure. So, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close and that's a wrap and 80s, take it away.
1: And cut. Enigma buried in the sand. A question mark with broken wings that lies in silent grace as a marker in a desert shrine. Odd how the real consorts with the shadows, how the present fuses with the past. How does it happen? The question is on file in the silent desert. And the answer, the answer's waiting for us in the Twilight Zone.